chapter 34. Psalm chapter 34. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days? that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of, of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Stone. Might be a little hot. We good now? All right, we're good. For as long as I can remember, I've been kind of a dreamer, you might say. I remember in elementary school, I can't even remember right now the color of the brick uh, along the walls in the hallway. And while I was in elementary school, I remember dreaming about, about what life in high school would be like. In high school, I remember dreaming about what college would be like. In college, I remember dreaming about what married life would be like. And in married life, I dreamed, remember dreaming about career trajectory and the family I would have. And, you know, in all those seasons of dreams that I've had and I still continue to dream today and think about where my life with Lisa is going and our children and what we're doing and um, what I hope for. Never in my dreams have I dreamt about crisis or suffering. I've never really woven into my hopes for what the future holds this Beautiful story of incredible crisis. There was some reason I just sort of leave that out of all of my dreams. You know, even when I think about my kids' lives, my hope for them, 
What it usually involves is something like this, to use a metaphor. It, uses, um, it usually involves sort of this long, smooth runway for their life, uh, a trouble-free takeoff. I think about them having a smooth flight, no turbulence. You know the one where you can take your seatbelt off and get up and walk around and everything's peaceful? I think about their flight of life being one with excellent neighbors, you know, the people that have really good questions and interesting lives that they could talk to and great people coming into their world and blessing them. If marriage is for them, I pray for their spouse, that they would be the right one. If marriage is not for my children, I pray that they are enriched by the people that are around them. And I pray for a peaceful landing. I think about that often. And what I envision is just great weather and smooth sailing for their entire life. And you know, I find myself, they really haven't suffered much yet in their life, a few broken bones, um, some feelings hurt by friends occasionally, you know, things of that nature. But I tremble at the thought of my children entering into crisis that a human being just cannot solve. The idea of suffering. And what makes this psalm, Psalm 34, I'm so glad that Don read the whole thing for you. What makes this psalm so incredibly important for you is that this psalm is about a man who is entering into crisis and just left a crisis and still in crisis and suffering that no human being really is able to solve. There's a title of this psalm in Psalm uh, chapter 34, verse. they call it verse 1, but it's sort of just a title. And it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. This psalm is tied directly to a really specific time in David's life. And those of you that have probably traced David's life, you know some things about him. Up until this point in David's life, his life had actually been pretty good. He's probably at this time of the psalm in maybe his mid-twenties. And up until this point in David's life, it's gone pretty well. He had a job when he was a kid as a shepherd. Probably taught him a lot about hard work and discipline and effort. Uh, he was blessed by an older, sage, wise leader of the community who anointed him and told him that someday, young man, you're going to be king. Really prophesied into his future, didn't he, about David. David um, then began to become kind of a cultured person. He learned the harp. He developed artistic abilities. He was well-rounded. And when he was a teenager, he became a national hero, slayed the giant, cut off his head, and carried him around. And the nation around sang David's praises. And that killing of that man, Goliath, led him to an amazing job in the military. David then marries into the royal family. And at this point, would you all agree his life's going pretty good, isn't it? Things are working out for David. And then all of a sudden, everything turns. David loses his job. He loses his house. He loses his wife. He loses his friends. And when Saul turned on David, he became jealous of him and even tried to take his life, tried to kill him. David takes off for the wilderness and he's running to save his life. And in this moment, David finds himself, just before he writes Psalm 34, carrying the only weapon this warrior could find. You know what weapon he was carrying? 
Goliath's old sword. He went into the temple or to the tabernacle and he found the priest. And the only thing that was left there was Goliath's old sword, the guy that he killed. And so David takes that sword and he goes to the only town that he could run to, trying to escape from Saul. And you know where he goes? The city of Gath. Who's from Gath? Goliath's from Gath. And he's there with Goliath's sword as the man who killed Goliath. And they recognize him. The people say, hey, aren't you the one that they sing about? Saul killed the thousands, but David killed the ten thousands. And David knows his life is in danger. Behind him is the king Saul chasing him. He's going to kill him. And in front of him is the king of Gath, who David killed their greatest warrior and made them servants of Israel. And these men take David to the king. And David knows it's over. He's dead. And so in that moment, David does something crazy. No, literally crazy. If you haven't read this story before, David stands before Abimelech, king of Gath, and he's like, what do I do? And he wigs out. He starts pretending to actually be crazy. He starts murmuring and babbling. He starts drooling down his beard, and he's like falling down. He's acting crazy. And Abimelech, the king, all of a sudden goes, wait a minute. I've got crazy people everywhere. I don't need another crazy person in my country. Get this guy out of here. And David's like, this worked. I'm alive still. I just acted crazy and drooled down my face. And I'm still here. And he writes this psalm. And if you listen to this psalm, it starts out pretty jubilant and exciting. He's praising God. He's excited. He's celebratory. And yet this psalm is all about how we handle our suffering. David saying, I have and I continue to suffer, but God, you are good and I want everyone Not just to hear what I say about your goodness, God, and my suffering, but I long for everyone to taste and see that you are good. You are so good, God, in the midst of my suffering. Wouldn't it be great that every person across this world would actually begin to taste and see that you are good? And so what this psalm shows us, what David shows us, is what suffering can do for us if we'll let it. Suffering has the power to craft us and not crush us if we handle our suffering the right way, if we think about it the right way, if we approach it the right way. First of all, David shows us, number one, that suffering declares to us reality. It tells us what's real. Number one, there's two crucial things that we learn about life in suffering. Two things that are so important for you to walk away from this morning knowing this is true about the world and suffering will teach it to you. Number one, life is hard. Life is difficult. You know, there's a part of us that just gets frustrated by this because we enjoy beautiful things, we enjoy pleasurable things, and there's something about us that knows that the world is supposed to be enjoyable and beautiful, and it is. It was designed to be that way. But the world is broken. David says in verse 4, he talks about his terrors. That's not just being afraid. That is actually the pain that comes from the fear. Verse 6, he talks about troubles. Verse 19, he speaks of afflictions. What he's saying is, 
this world is hard. Life is hard. Live long enough and you will eventually experience something difficult. It's simple yet it's important that God wants you to know, number one, life is actually hard. Number two, we are insufficient. We do not have the power within our own means to handle and overcome every obstacle that actually comes our way. We don't have the ability to avert any sort of suffering and crisis. There were times when things will come into our lives that are beyond our ability, beyond our control, and we will suffer. And we'll learn in that suffering that we are insufficient to control this entire world. Now, we're not really used to hearing that kind of message. And I may say that, you may agree with me, but we don't really like that message all too well. Whether you hear it from Dr. Seuss when he tells you things like the places will go, you remember that book? That you have the brains in your head, the feet on your shoes, you can steer yourself any direction you choose. Or the more macho version, it's become more popular recently, Invictus. You ever heard the poem Invictus? It finishes this way, let me read it to you. It says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. Any of you hear that at your graduations this year? <laughs> that seems to be a popular one lately. And this message sort of rings through us out throughout our entire culture that you can do it. You've got all that you need, and you are powerful, and you are able. And yet, we find out soon enough that there are times in our life when we're not. You see, in verse 10... David uses the word picture to teach you this truth. He says, the young lions suffer, want, and are hungry. Young lions, why would he use that picture? Why would he use that analogy? What do you think about with a lion? Well, they're powerful and dominant. They rule some of the riskiest places in this world, don't they? And you got a young lion with all the energy and capacity and strength and might and it embeds fear into anybody or anything that crosses its path. And you put between you and a hungry young lion, that young lion is always going to be victorious, right? But you know what a young lion cannot do? A young lion cannot create food where food does not exist. So this young lion has all the potential, all the ability, all the power, all the resources to conquer the world in which it lives. And yet, when young lion becomes hungry lion, and hungry lion has no antelope, hungry lion becomes what? Dead lion. I see a lot of young lions in this audience here. A lot of people that have great abilities, great power, great opportunities. And sooner or later, life will teach us that we actually are not sufficient in and of ourselves. And so suffering teaches us, it declares to us reality, but number two, suffering in this reality begins to direct our cry. David mentions over and over and over in this psalm the phrase cry. In verse 6 he says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. Verse 15, he says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears are toward their cry. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. 
First and foremost, suffering does make us cry. And he's not talking about weeping or even tears. This word cry is the very same word that gets translated in the Septuagint into the Greek when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that word in English is probably best described as a shriek, as a shrill, as a scream. It's the moment when you hit the end of your rope and you scream out because you finally realize, I can't do it. I can't fix it. And you just scream in your frustration and you're crying for help. But suffering doesn't just make us cry. It doesn't just make us shriek. It begins to direct where we cry. You see, suffering is both experiential. You know, know, we experience it in our body, in our mind, in our emotions. But it's also incredibly philosophical. There are many people in this world who live a life incredibly indifferent towards God and religion. Live all their lives. Do their own thing. Um, go their own way, make their own paths, just have their own mindset towards life that are indifferent towards God. And when suffering, overwhelming suffering, out of their control suffering comes upon us, we begin to ask questions like, where is God? Or if there were a God, why would he let this happen? Or why would God, who is a God of love, let things like this happen to me? Do you see what What happens in our suffering, whether you're a believer or not, it begins to direct your cry to something bigger than you. That's what suffering does. And when you are overwhelmed and you are burdened by your suffering, you are left to cry to someone or something bigger than you. And it's in this moment when suffering commences and you recognize it is bigger than what you can handle and you cry out knowing you need something bigger than you, that David invites you in verse 8. Taste and see that God is good. Come and taste. Now, David is not flippant in his use of words. When he says the word taste, he doesn't just mean that you can substitute hear and see, or smell and see, or even touch and see. You see, the difference between all those is they're outside of you. David says, I want you to taste and see. What's the difference? That goes inside of you. He's trying to get down deep. And so in this moment, David says, I want you to taste. I want you to see in verse 8, cry in your cry, in your suffering, cry to God. Cry to him. Try him. Test him. See what he's like. And here's what David has found and what he wants you to find. That in his suffering, God showed up. But God cannot show up if there's no space in the inn. Remember when Mary and Joseph came to Bethlehem? They knocked on the doors and they looked around and said, can we stay here? And every one of them said, there's no room in the inn. There's no room for God to be here because there's no space. And if you don't make space, make available in your cry for God to come, for you to try and test him to see if he'll be there. How can he make space? How can he be there? In your cry of suffering, you've got to try and see if God will be there. And what David says over and over in this psalm, that the Lord hears the cry of the righteous. He delivers. He shows up. His face is there. He sees you. He delivers. He saves. But all of that is noise. All of that is just words. Until you and your suffering taste and see. There's a book that was written by a man named Ben Sherwood, who is the president of ABC Entertainment. 
He wrote a book called The Survivor's Club. And uh, he's not a believer, but it's sort of an interesting book about who survives and how people survive. It could be random things like, you know, an airplane crash or things like that. Like, like who are the people that survived? And at the end of the book, he says this. I want to read a quote to you. He says, as I began to interview survivors, I noticed a remarkable pattern. Overwhelmingly, they shared a belief that God and faith had sustained them through their trials. As many as 75 to 80 percent cited a higher power as an important reason for their survival. Over time, my unbelief proved no match for their conviction. Indeed, I began to feel admiration for their faith, and I envied their certitude. He goes on to say this. Military folks like to joke that there are no atheists in foxholes. When bullets fly, everyone prays. In the trenches of survival, it is the very same. Either they, are faced, either they face their crisis with a strong faith or they discover it in the crucible. And his point is, as he went around and just interviewed and explored and, and talked with all these different survivors of incredible things, what he found is in the suffering, either people walked into suffering with faith and faced it with faith or in the suffering they found some measure of faith. That suffering demands that we cry out to something bigger than us. And when we cry out to God, we'll find him present. Now, when he shows up, this is where the psalm becomes good news. So that's sort of the, the difficult part. Here's when the psalm becomes good news. When you do cry in your suffering to God, and he does show up, and he does begin to deliver, and he does make his presence known, and there's courage and peace and joy found, two things really important happen to you. Number one, Suffering begins to deepen your praise. Every person in this room this morning, even our children, have brought a measure of praise to God. We have been led, by song, led in songs by Kevin. We were led in communion by Rodney. And we were led in these moments to give God honor, glory, and praise for who he is. But something happens when a person suffers and suffers with God through that process. It deepens their praise. You see, David is praising in Psalm 34, not for what he has heard, not for what he has been taught. This young man was taught a lot and he has heard a lot. David is praising God for what he has been through with God. And ultimately what God has done for him. You see, David says in verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. You see, here's what happens when we are changed by suffering. When uh, suffering begins to change our praise, first of all, it changes when you praise. In verse 1, he says, I will praise him all the time. Praise goes from just being something we do randomly on Sundays to something we do with our entire life. That God receives glory and honor and praise, not just in moments when I'm being religious, but in the essence of my life. Who God is, he deserves my praise. What you praise. David is praising over and over in this psalm what God actually has done for him. The substance of what he's saying. In Revelation it tells that the saints overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of what God has done for them. What has God actually done for you? That's what David wants you to have. That's what he wants you to experience. What is the greatest thing you're suffering with? What is the thing you're concerned about? What are you wrecked over? He says, bring that to God. Taste and see he's good. 
And it'll deepen your praise, not just the fact that you'll praise all the time, but you'll begin to praise him for what he's done in your life. It's convicting to people. And it begins to change also not just when and what, but from where you praise. Notice David says in verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. You see, the Hebrews didn't actually believe in this sort of divided human, like mind is here and your body is here physically and your soul is here and you do physical things here and you do mental things here and you do religious spiritual things here and when you're in different places you don't do the other. The Hebrews believed in a unified person, that you were who you are, body and soul in the temple, mind, body, and soul in the wilderness, mind, body, and soul with your family. You were all those things as one. And when the Hebrew would say my soul, what they were saying is not just my religious part or not just my intellectual part or my emotional part or my physical part, but all of me, every part of me. David is saying my soul, when, suffer, when in suffering we find, when we find God present, our soul, every part of us, will no longer boast in anything that we have done or who we are, but finally in who God is and what he has done. Our soul begins to praise him. And lastly, when suffering deepens our praise, it begins to do the thing that God has always wanted to do. Suffering develops our character. I want to ask you to draw a picture of the five most significant moments in your life. The things that have shaped you more than anything else. The things that have made you who you are. How many of those five pictures do you think would involve some difficulty, some suffering, some challenge? You see, we know that suffering has a forging effect on us. We know that it has the ability to shape us and mold us. And that's what God is trying to do as he walks with us through suffering, is to develop our character. You see, David shows us that suffering gave him compassion. He says, let the humble here in verse 2. Taste and see, he says, many are the afflictions. David is a man who became compassionate with other people who suffer. When you suffer, you begin to learn how to suffer with other people. You begin to have compassion on those who are hurting. You begin to sympathize, and it shapes your character. Number two, suffering gives you joy, unshakable joy, based on the presence of God and not your circumstances being right. Suffering is the smelling salt of reality that shows you that God's presence can be your joy beyond just circumstances going right. Suffering gives you humility. It shows you that you don't have the power to conquer and solve everything. It shows you that you're not above and beyond going through difficulty. And suffering gives you incredible amounts of confidence. Not a confidence that's in yourself, but a confidence in God who when he shows up, he delivers. Now how do we know that God shows up how do we know he will why should you actually trust God in your suffering when you come down to verse 19 look at this promise David says many are the afflictions of the righteous and the promise is this the Lord delivers him out of them all you see we can have confidence because we know God is working in our suffering in verse 19 he says that the righteous will have many afflictions but he will be delivered out of them all but then something really weird happens in verse 20. Look at verse 20 again. Did you notice this when Don read it? It's out of place. It doesn't really make sense. In verse 19, many, many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20, he keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. 
And then affliction will slay the wicked. And he goes on to talk about our redemption. Why is that verse 20 placed in this psalm? Is he saying that if you break a bone, you're not righteous? Good luck. Try somewhere else. I hope not. You see, it would be about a thousand years later that this psalm would actually find its true fulfillment. Because the only true, real, righteous man, Jesus Christ, suffered many afflictions. And they weren't his. He was called a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He bore the sins of many. He became sin so that you and I would be freed from sin. And on the cross, he carried the heaviest amount of affliction. And as he was hanging on the cross that day, because it was near the Sabbath, the Jews asked those in charge in Rome to help get the bodies down quickly so that the bodies would be down before the Sabbath. And so the soldiers went out with a club to break the legs of those hanging on the cross so they would die of asphyxiation, so they would stop breathing. And they break legs of the one man. They come to Jesus. They look, and he's already dead. They stab him in the side, and water and blood gush out. And they don't break his legs. His bones were not broken. But you might ask this question. Okay, if this is about Jesus, verse 19 and verse 20, many are the afflictions of the righteous. It says at the end of verse 20, the Lord delivers him out of them all. So you might rightly ask this question. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, righteous man suffering affliction, the promise is God delivered out of them all. Where's God? Where was God when Jesus was hanging on the cross to deliver this righteous man who did not deserve it from the affliction that he was facing? Where was God? And in this moment, you can learn something so important about life, even about suffering. It gives you a totally different perspective about life. You see, here's what happens. God is showing you that life is not just birth to grave. But life is actually birth through the grave to eternity. When was Jesus delivered from this affliction? He went to death, went to the tomb, buried for three days. And what happened three days that Sunday morning? He was resurrected from the dead. God delivered the righteous from this. And in his resurrection, what God tells you is that your life is not just birth to grave. So here's the deal. Some people, maybe in here, might suffer all the way to the grave. That might actually happen. Your suffering might take you to your grave. But because of Jesus' victory, we know that the grave might take us in this life, but it doesn't hold us forever. We'll cry like uh, Paul told us, oh, death, where is your victory? It's not there anymore. Death no longer owns us. And so he finishes in verse 22 that those who take refuge in him will not be condemned. That means will not have to bear their guilt on their own. See, David knew that he didn't deserve the deliverance of God. He knew that God would be justified if he let David suffer all alone in the wilderness. David knew as a sinner he deserved that. But when God shows up and he saves David, David is overwhelmed with joy. And when you consider how God shows up to save you, you don't have to suffer alone, but there was one who suffered immensely all alone so that you would never be alone. You become more and more confident that he'll be there in your sorrow and in your suffering. And next time you suffer, you'll cry out, not just to the universe, but to God. And say, come deliver me. And his presence will be the very thing that you realize. And you'll taste and see that he is good. So I want to encourage you to pray to God that he will teach you to turn your suffering 
to turn to him in your suffering and grow in you a heart of praise and a life of character in the suffering so that we can become the kind of people that God wants us to be and face our suffering in light of the cross so that we can have unshakable joy and a presence with God. Let's stand and sing. If you need him, you can come.